I'm so glad that you're joining with us for part four of our current series that we're in, titled Seven Signs. In this series, we are looking at the Gospel of John, the fourth gospel that we have in the Bible. And one of the things that makes John's gospel unique among the four that we have is how focused it is. You know, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke have, you know, many, many miracles that Jesus did throughout his life, John only shares seven. And these seven miracles that John shares aren't just, you know, some miracles that happened. It's an intentionally curated selection of seven miracles. It's seven things that prove that Jesus is who he says he is. Seven things that prove that, you know, Jesus isn't just a man or a prophet. He isn't just just any person that, that God is using. These are signs that Jesus is God. And these seven miracles in John's gospel, they're not just miracles, they are signs. And while signs are important, kind of the whole premise of a sign is that a sign really pales in comparison to what they actually point to. What they point to is so much more important than what they are in and of themselves. Signs are meant to point to things. Previously in this series, we've talked about Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding. We've talked about the healing of the Roman official's son. We've talked about the healing of the paralytic at the pools of Bethesda. But today we're going to be diving in to a story known as the feeding of the 5,000. This story can be found in John chapter 6 verses 1 to 15. And this comes you know, shortly after Jesus healed the paralytic at the pools of Bethesda. And you know, he'd been questioned by the Pharisees because he had healed a man on the Sabbath. And that's where we're at in this story. At this point, Jesus has you know, a pretty big and consistent following. He's performed many miracles. You know, we've talked about three of them specifically. And word had gotten around and, you know, people wanted to see, you know, what was it that Jesus could do? You know, what's this guy all about? So we're going to pick it up right here in John 6. And we're going to start off reading verses 1 and 2. It says, after this, so after he's being, you know, questioned by the Pharisees and, and after he'd healed the paralytic at the pools of Bethesda, it says, after this, Jesus crossed over to the, to the far side of the Sea of Galilee also known as the Sea of Tiberias. And just inside, it's actually a lake by our current designations. It's, it's a freshwater lake, but that's besides the point. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw the miraculous signs as he healed the sick. There's something a little bit different about this, this little opening bit, uh, this travel explanation that, that we're getting here in, in this gospel. See, normally when Jesus travels in the gospels, at least many of the times we see Je- Jesus travel in the gospel of John, you know, he's going somewhere a little bit more specific than just to the far side of the Sea of Galilee. And oftentimes it'll, in addition to making mention of, you know, where it is he's going, it'll say why. He's like, you know, going to do this thing or to see this person. Like, Just last week's passage that we looked at, it says that Jesus traveled to Jerusalem to be there for the holy days. But this situation's a little bit different than that. 
See, there's no mention of a specific place Jesus and his disciples are going. And it certainly doesn't say why they're going there. It just says they're going to the far side of the Sea of Galilee. The only kind of like context situation, the only other information we have is that it says that the crowd kept following him wherever he went. It was like they, they wouldn't leave him alone. And you know, I like to imagine if you know, we were to put a soundtrack on this moment, we'd add some you know, tension building music, even maybe some full on energetic action movie spy theme, like, like it's a chase scene in a Bourne movie or something like that. You know, Jesus trying to get away, the crowd's like, no, we gotta stay following Jesus. And you know, instead of dodging in and out of alleys and running over rooftops, you know, we have Jesus deking out the Pharisees and you know, getting in a boat and crossing the lake to be alone, to get somewhere where he could be alone. But just as many chase scenes end, the pursuer does in fact manage to keep up. I mean, how couldn't they? You know, with everything they had just seen, with you know, everything they'd just been a part of, the crowd just had to stay with Jesus. He was doing some incredible, miraculous things. So we're gonna continue in John 6, verse three. It says, then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. So we see the inevitable happens. The crowd in hot pursuit of Jesus finds him on a hill. And, you know, this isn't too surprising. You know, whether you're familiar with the story or maybe you're just familiar with the area as the the original hearers of John's story would have been. It isn't too hard to see where this is going. And those of us familiar with the story know that Jesus is about to do something amazing, that, you know, the crowd is going to be there to see something cool. But those who John is writing to, the people who are hearing this for the first time, you know, they would have been able to imagine the Sea of Galilee. And sure, it's the largest lake in the area, but it still doesn't come anywhere near to the size of the Great Lakes that we have here in Ontario, you know, as big as the Sea of Galilee is, you can still see completely to the other side. Sure, it won't be super clear and it won't be obvious who specifically you're looking at, but if you're, if you're looking for somebody, if you're following them from one place to another, you're gonna, keep, you're gonna be able to keep seeing them. You're gonna find who you're looking for. So we continue, John 6 verse five, it says, turning to Philip, He asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip for he already knew what he was about to do. Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, stood up and then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up and said, There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what is that? What good is that with this huge crowd? You know, moments like this in the Bible can be, they can really easily lose their impact through familiarity. You know, the more you hear it, the more you're like, yeah, yeah, loaves and fishes. Boy's got the loaves and fishes. Yeah, we know how this goes. But, you know, If you've heard this story before, or if you maybe have a good guess as to where this is going because you heard the title of the story that I opened with, you know, 
let, let's try our best to completely forget all of that and, and just live in, the, in this moment, you know? You've got the situation, you've got all these people coming and Jesus is like, here, we got to feed them. And you've got this guy, Andrew, who decides to bring up this. He's like, um, hey guys, I know it's a lot of people and we were talking about money, but you know, this kid over here has got five loaves of bread and two fish. Um, man, you know, I don't know what Andrew's mindset was exactly with bringing this information up. You know, maybe he figured, you know, we've seen some really cool things that Jesus has done already. You know, let's just, we'll throw this out there. We'll see what happens with it. Or, you know, maybe the kid just came up to, to him and was like, hey, mister, mister, I can help. I have some bread and fish. And, you know, maybe Andrew's just a nice guy and he's like, oh, I, I, I don't want to just completely shut down this kid. You know, he's, he's a nice guy. He's sharing his lunch. So, you know, I'll, I'll mention it to the group. Well, it's probably not going to help, but I'll mention it to the group. You know, it could be either way. It, it could be something completely different. Maybe, who knows what Andrew was thinking in that moment when he brought that information forward to the other disciples and to Jesus. But, you know, reflecting on how I would probably respond to that situation if I was one of the other disciples sitting there and this guy named Andrew is like, hey, this kid's got five loaves of bread and two fish. I probably would have been the disciple to say something like, oh, and two fish? We're definitely good then, right? You know, in just complete sarcasm. But what Jesus does next with this is going to surprise every single person there. It's amazing. 5,000 people, counting just the men. You got five loaves of bread and two fish. So continuing in John 10 through 15, or 6 verses 10 through 15, Jesus says, tell everyone to sit down. So they sat down on the grassy slopes, The men alone numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, Now go gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely this is the prophet that we've been expecting. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. I mean, we had no doubts, right? But when we stop and think about it, like how amazing is that? Jesus pulls up and he feeds over 5,000 people. That could have been more than three times the amount of people who were there. You know, if the 5,000 is only counting the men and if there were women and children as well, you know, that could have easily been, you know, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 people all from just five loaves of bread and two fish. And the crowd's response fits this, the occasion. 
You know, their response is so intense that Jesus has to sneak away because the crowd was ready to, it specifically says, was ready to force him to be their king. Now, who are they forcing? You know, I guess it kind of would be both ways. You know, it'd be taking Jesus and forcing him into that role as well as the fact that they are being occupied by one of the strongest military powers the world has ever seen, the Roman Empire. It'd be a lot of forcing that would need to happen to to make that happen in that situation. It would have been a massive move. You know, you've got a band of 5,000 men declaring a king. It would have been a significant statement. You know, that's about the same amount of people as a Roman legion. Well, Rome has a good 30 times that many legions and those legions are... Some of them are battle-hardened and trained warriors. This 5,000 is still just a starting number. But Jesus knows that this isn't the way it's supposed to go. So he gets out of there. The next day in John 6, 25 to 27, the crowd catches up with Jesus again and they ask him why he left. And this was his response. It says, they found him on the other side of the lake and asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. But don't be so concerned about the perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. Basically, Jesus tells them, I left because you are completely missing the point. He tells them that their focus is completely off. See, the, the people there that Jesus fed are picking up some of what Jesus is laying down. You know, they're associating this moment with deliverance, with freedom, with the rule of God. And they're not entirely wrong with that. You know, this Jesus is king. That, that is completely right. But the way that they want to go about doing it is not the plan. There's a detail in verse four in that passage that can be really easy to overlook. It specifies that this is all taking place right around the Jewish feast of Passover. Now, Passover is one of the most important festivals for the Jewish people because Passover is when they remember their deliverance from the hands of Pharaoh in Egypt. When they were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt and they were, uh, they were set free, where God freed them from their captivity. And there are many layers as to how this relates to the Passover story because this idea of being fed by bread comes up more than once. You know, for one, there is bread eaten on the night of Passover, the, the you know, initial night of Passover where, where God uses one final plague to, to free the Hebrew people from the hands of Pharaoh. They eat bread on that night. But the second thing too is as as the Hebrew people are wandering through the desert, there is manna, like a, a bread from heaven that God gives them to sustain them while 
they spend that time in the desert because there's no other food to eat. You know, regardless of which moment the people there might have associated with what Jesus had just done for them as he fed them, either way, there's this element of deliverance and conquest to it. You know, if it was the the former, the the Passover meal, the, the bread that they ate on the night of Passover, you know, that would mean that that would signify to them that deliverance is coming, that Jesus is the Moses-like figure who's going to lead them out of the hand of their oppressor, who is currently Caesar. The latter option, if they associated that with the manna in the desert, you know, it could speak to people that it will be the sustenance that they will need to retake their land, that you know, they are gearing up for the battle. It could remind them of the initial conquest of the land of Canaan under Joshua. And it just so happens that the man who just fed them yesterday shares the same name, Yeshua. It's the same name. While the people are not entirely wrong about the significance of this sign, you know, this does allude to both of those things. Their focus is still off because they are still looking for what Jesus is going to do for them. But see, what Jesus is looking to do is he's looking to bring this reality that was once true for a people in a time to all people for all time. That original Passover, Moses brought deliverance for the Hebrew people. Joshua gave the Hebrew people a home. And both of those things lasted for a time. But Jesus was here to deliver all of humanity from the grip of sin. Something that's going to continue forever, something that doesn't end, something that can never be taken away. That means to bridge the relational gap between all of humanity and God. But because the crowd was more attracted to the signs that Jesus was doing, they were missing what it was that the signs were actually pointing to. So much so that Jesus had to remove himself from that situation to keep it from getting out of hand. This can be true for us as well. You know, if we are more attracted to the signs than the signified, we become consumers. And consumers don't change the world. When the crowd became so enamored with the signs that Jesus was doing rather than what it was or who it was that they actually pointed to, they were playing no part in the world-changing stuff that Jesus was about to accomplish. You know, they were actually hindering that. They were actually standing in opposition of what Jesus was ultimately here to do. So again, if we're more attracted to the signs than the signified, if we're more attracted to miracles than Jesus himself, we become consumers rather than participants. There's a road that I've been needing to take when I drive home from getting groceries. I get my groceries in Mount Forest. I live in Harrison. And normally I just take Highway 89 right from you know Mount Forest back to Harrison. But they've been doing some, some work on that road. So there's you know, some back roads that I have to take at the moment to, to get home. Now, one of those roads is 
eighth line. And you know, a long eighth line, there's a pretty long straightaway. And it can be quite scenic at times. You know, it's it's a be- beautiful road. You have beautiful old trees arching over the road on both sides. You know, there's rolling hills, ups and downs. You know, it can be really quite nice. But toward the end of that road, when I'm getting closer to home, there's a fairly sharp turn to the left. And because of the rolling hills up and down, you know, you can't see the actual pavement too far ahead. So, you know, you just trust that the road is there and you keep driving. But that's where that sharp turn can actually be quite dangerous because you don't see it coming. You can't see the road ahead until it's too late to make that turn at the speed because most people drive on, on that road, you know, fast enough that you need to you need to slow down a good amount before you make that turn. And before you know it, you'd be off in a farmer's field calling CAA to pull you out. However, you know, the province or the municipality, you know, whoever it is that maintains that road, you know, they're pretty clever. They, they know what they're doing. You know, they've obviously anticipated this risk. And, you know, this is a case we, we take it for granted on, on most of our roads because here, you know, we drive and, and we see signs indicating different things. So, you know, you drive and, and they put up signs indicating a bend in the road, you know, further back than the actual bend. So as you're approaching it, as you still have enough time to see the action that you need to make, you have time to adjust your speed and make that turn. And I've never seen anyone stuck in that field. You know, mind you, I haven't driven that road in the winter yet. So maybe that will be different when the snow starts falling more consistently. And I myself have hardly ever come close to ending up in that ditch myself. But do you notice that I said hardly? I, I can't say never. I say hardly because there was this one time where I wouldn't say I was close to ending up in that field, but it was much more of a possibility than any other time I've driven on that road. You know, I was driving along and I didn't reduce my speed as much as I normally would have. You know, I was in a bit of a daze. You know, you get into that autopilot mode when you're driving and then all of a sudden you snap out of it and you know, normally all of a sudden you're just almost at your destination and you don't remember most of the car ride at all and you're like I was driving that whole time and I don't remember how we got here I can assume how we got here because I've done this drive before but I don't remember that drive you know it was almost like that except instead of you know the autopilot driving the autopilot that I was on was kind of like uh, the the beta testing version that shouldn't be out on the roads quite yet because when I finally did slow down and take that turn safely you know hit the brakes a little harder than I normally would have. My wife Haley said to me, didn't you see the sign? And my response to that was actually, yeah, I I saw the sign. I was actually kind of zoned out, only staring at the sign. And my brain decided I didn't need to do anything about it. You know, rather than doing the normal thing when you see a sign, you know, just see the sign, recognize the sign is telling me something important, adjust course or take action. My brain was like, oh, a sign. Yep, that's a sign. Still a sign. Oh yeah, there's no road here. Thankfully, my brain figured it out in time. We were okay. We did not end up in the field. But that same thing happened with the crowd of 5,000 that Jesus, the same thing that happened with the crowd of 5,000 that Jesus fed can be a real risk for us today. 
It's something that has been and, and will continue to be a tension point throughout all of church history. I mean, who doesn't love a good miracle? You know, who doesn't want to see God move in an incredible way? When that happens, there's nothing we can do but be amazed. We, we can't help but look at it. It would have been incredible to take part in that meal on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's a joyous moment when somebody is healed of a disease or illness that, or when a miraculous provision for a need is met or even there's entire movements based around a move of the Holy Spirit in real and tangible ways that just shakes the culture and, and the world. These things are amazing. Who doesn't love that? But when we elevate these things that God does, when we elevate the thing that God did, whatever it may be, over God himself, we actually turn that thing into an idol. When we begin to serve God for what he can do for us, rather than how we can be a part of what he, uh, be a part of the way that he is changing the world, we miss the point. When we focus on our wants and desires over the mission of God, we take on a consumeristic mindset. We fall into a transactional faith that has nothing to do with what the gospel is actually about. And we see that when, when people promote ideas like sow this seed offering and you'll get this much back or you'll receive X amount of blessings or it'll be multiplied this much by next week. You know, rather than just giving out of, you know, a true heart of generosity or actual thankfulness and desiring to see that money make an impact on the kingdom of God. You know, it happens when we elevate certain spiritual gifts over others. You know, a prime example would be elevating the, the gift of speaking in tongues over the gift of hospitality or the gift of discernment or the gift of exhortation. I mean, like, ooh, discernment, I don't want that. I want to speak in tongues. It's cooler, right? No, that's, that's not the point, right? 1 Peter 4 verse 9 says that we should all practice hospitality. It's actually the only spiritual gift that we are all specifically called to practice. But I can confidently say that, you know, when I was in youth or even as an adult, I've never been to or seen or heard of an altar call for people to receive the gift of hospitality. Oh, but I've seen it for the gift of speaking in tongues many, many times. And it's, it's great. It's a good thing. But when we elevate these miracles, these signs, these gifts from God to a place higher than what they're intended for, and that intention, what they're intended for is to bring glory to God. When we elevate these over that, they become idols. You know, what was once given to us by given to us by god and meant for good becomes used for evil takes away detracts distracts you know in that driving example coming up to that bend if i were to keep driving and, and not turn that same sign that was supposed to keep me safe that same sign that's supposed to remind me to slow down and turn actually ends up damaging my car more when I hit it because now there's a sign there rather than just an open field. Something that was meant for good, meant for my benefit, actually ends up doing more harm. 
The second thing about science, though, is that how we respond to science can show us where our spiritual maturity is at. We know that signs and miracles are good things. You know, these things, these signs and miracles, when observed, used, and appreciated properly, point us to Jesus, point us to who he is, and bring glory to the Father. And when we're able to put signs in their proper place, it signifies uh, a spiritual maturity as believers. But the crowd following Jesus clearly lacked the spiritual maturity to see what Jesus was trying to do. I mean, granted, they didn't have the story written out for them, kind of really explaining to them how how they had gone wrong. But they still missed it. You know, the Passover illusion that Jesus was making wasn't to start an uprising or, or, or to, to have him insta- put, uh, installed as, as an earthly king in that moment. But to foreshadow the sacrifice that he was going to make. That he was going to be the sacrifice to atone for the sins of all of humanity. As well as to, to foreshadow the, the communion meal, the, the last supper, the communion meal that we will take part in with Jesus in eternity. So I'm going to bring this back to the driving illustration because I hope it keeps on working. But when people first start driving, you know, 16 years old, you get your beginner's permit and you know, what's, what's the first piece of advice that you would give to a brand new driver? Keep your eyes on the road. That's the first thing most people say to new drivers. It's probably the most helpful piece of advice anybody could ever hear for, for driving ever. Keep your eyes on the road. Because new drivers and experienced drivers too sometimes have a tendency to drive in the direction that they're looking. The more experienced you get, the better you are at being able to turn your head without turning the entire vehicle along with it. And in the same way, the more spiritually mature we get, the more we can see these signs, examine these signs, appreciate these signs without losing focus of what it is that they are signifying. The more spiritually mature we are, the less likely we are to end up in the ditch we were looking at and the, the more likely we are to keep moving forward in the direction that God would have us to move toward him, glorifying him. Because ultimately, all signs point to Jesus. Every miracle, every gift, every good thing in this world is meant to draw us closer to him, to see him more fully and to glorify the Father. But, if we are more attracted to the signs than what they signify, we become more consumers than participants and we aren't adding to the kingdom in that way. And what's funny about that is it's a bit of a catch-22 because it's, it's kind of a, a paradox. Because the more attracted we are to the signs, the less signs we will actually end up seeing because they are distracting us from what's important. So God's not going to do them as much. 
But on the other hand, the more focused we are on Jesus, the more we're walking in his will, the more we are participating in his plan for all of humanity, the more he is going to move, the more he's going to do cool things, the more he is going to take action in this world, the more he is going to work through us and do these miraculous things, the more the Holy Spirit is going to show up and show off. But again, the moment that our motivation to loving Jesus, to serving Jesus, to taking part in that mission becomes, the more the focus of of that becomes to see miracles and signs. And that is the moment that's gonna flip right back over. Because no matter how clever we think we are, the, no matter how much we think we can kind of justify it in our heads, the more, no matter how many loopholes we can find to try and convince ourselves that, you know, oh, I'm just doing this for God's glory, but really I just want to see something cool happen. You know, we can't, nor should we want to manipulate God. God is God and he's going to do what he's going to do. But as followers of Jesus, we have this amazing opportunity and invitation to be a part of what he is doing in this world. We have the opportunity, the invitation to be a part of his active work of restoration, of bringing creation back into alignment with God. An active role in taking part in the healing of the sickness and brokenness in this world one life at a time. If you're watching this right now and maybe you don't consider yourself a Christian or a follower of Jesus, or maybe you do and, and you, know, you feel a tug at your heart, you want to be a part of God's active restoration in this broken world. And you wanna partner in that, you wanna be a participant in that. You, just, you don't wanna be a spectator, you don't wanna be a consumer. You want to take part in God's active restoration of this broken world. Now maybe, maybe you've never met Jesus before. Maybe you've never encountered him. Maybe this is your first time really being intrigued of the person of Jesus, of being like, hmm, this is somebody that I'd be really interested to follow. There's only three things that you need to do to, to join in with that mission. The first thing is, to acknowledge that you've made mistakes. We've all made mistakes. You know, we've all done things that put distance between us and God. And there's nothing that we can do in and of our in and of ourselves to bridge that gap. So first acknowledge that you've made mistakes. We call these mistakes sin. The second thing is believe that Jesus died and rose again so that your mistakes, so your sin can be forgiven. Believe that Jesus bridged that gap, that he is there as as the intermediary between us and the Father, bringing us into full relationship with him once again. And the third thing is really simple. Just receive the gift of freedom that Jesus has already paid for on your behalf. there's, There's no action that needs to take place. There's no sacrifice that you need to make. There's no, you know, thing that you can do to make yourself worthy or, or earn it. It's Jesus has already paid that price. The gift is already yours. You just need 
to acknowledge that you need the gift, acknowledge that, believe that Jesus paid for the gift and to receive the gift. If that's something that you want to do, if, if that's something that you're interested in, if it's something you want to walk in today, I encourage you to repeat this prayer after me. Say, Jesus, I want to walk and participate in the restoration of this broken world with you. God, I know that I've made mistakes. And I know that there's nothing that I can do to earn your forgiveness. But God, I believe that you lived, that you died, and you rose again. So that way I can be in relationship with you. God, I ask that you'd forgive me of my sins, and that you'd come into my life, and that you'd use me to bring your kingdom on earth and make a difference in this world. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer, you know, I, I encourage you to send me an email. My email is justin at myapa.ca or let a friend know who, who has shared this video or who you know is watching as well and you know, get connected. Let them know of, of that change that God is doing in your life. Let them know of, of what is going on because we aren't meant to walk alone in this, but we're meant we're called to walk alongside one another. We're walk to live in community. And we would love to come alongside you today and, and help you walk in that calling that God has for your life. To, to equip you, to empower you, to help you along in that journey. So, you know, send me an email, send uh, the person who shared this video with you a message. We'd love to get connected and so you don't have to walk through that alone. Well, let's close in prayer. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you that we're able to, to open it, to, to hear from you, to, that we're able to, to see these firsthand accounts of the person of Jesus, of, of what he did in this world, of, of what, how significant that is for us, God. And God, thank you for signs that you do. God, thank you for miracles and all these things that you do to point us to you. God, we pray that we would not let these signs be the, become a distraction that, that keep us from seeing you more clearly, God, but that we would put these signs in their proper place, that these signs would point us to you, point us to who you are in this world, who you are in our lives, God, that we would glorify you, not for what you can do for us, God, but because you are God. God, we thank you for who you are. God, we pray that you'd walk with each and every one of us this week, God, that you'd continually remind us of, of who you are in our hearts, God, and empower us to be a part of the active restoration of humanity in this world to you, God. God we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.